Scripture reading this morning is from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. It's on page 10 of your worship guide. Let's stand together as we hear God's word. Ephesians 1, 1 through 10. Paul, an apostle of Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Again, good morning to you. I realized this morning that we lose certain things in going to to services. And particularly the thing I realized that we lose uh, today is almost every year on daylight savings time in the spring, about an hour into the service, you would see somebody walk in the double doors uh, about, you know, an hour into the service and they'd stop and realize that the service is going on because they had somehow missed the announcement everywhere around them that it was daylight savings time. They hadn't set their clocks ahead, and so they were, um, they were running an hour behind and walk in and are surprised by that. I'm going to miss that, because sometimes it would be so fun. You, you'd watch them walk in the back and look around, and it would take them several seconds to begin to process. But with two services, you can just say, oh, I'm going to pretend like I planned on going to the second service and not get get caught. So, kudos to you who uh, are are willing to rise at a, an even earlier hour, and and uh, by perhaps some degree of reward, I'll tell you uh, one of my favorite stories, pastor stories. I have a good friend who pastors a church in Atlanta, and the church now is much much larger than we are, but they went through this phase of going to two services. And the earlier service, of course, is always more lightly attended than the later service. And in that service, um, one Sunday, he had uh, nine people in his early service, uh, four of which were regulars, five of which was a visiting family of alternative lifestyle. And the passage that day was one of the harder passages in the New Testament on uh, alternative lifestyles. And he says it was the single most uh, awkward Sunday of his entire ministerial career. He thinks he cut the sermon about in half and, and called it a day, and, and everybody went home. So lest you be discouraged, I'll also tell you that just from January to February, our overall attendance between the two services, um, our overall attendance as a church has increased by 20. So that's a pretty significant jump for us and uh, is by virtue of having made this decision. So... Um, Thank you, and hopefully you enjoy being up early and knocking out the first service of the day. Well, 
Let's jump into uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We're starting a new sermon series today, uh, which is uh, looking at one of Paul's later letters. His letter uh, to the Ephesians comes late in Paul's ministry. He's aging. It's one of his more mature letters. I had a professor in seminary who said if you wanted to really kind of get the one stop place to, uh, to have a good idea of the vast majority of Paul's theology, it would be Ephesians, which is in some ways an abridged version of Romans. Two things you need to know as we go into the book is that Paul hasn't seen the church in Ephesus in a long time. He hasn't been able to come back and he's worried about their condition. The Gentile believers there, if they're hanging on, persecution of Christians is increasing in the Roman Empire. And where is Paul writing from? He's writing from prison. He's in jail in Rome in chains. And so one of the things you need to think about as we go through the book is to think about how do you speak of the victory of Jesus Christ? How do you talk about God being successful in his plan of redemption when Paul's chained to a guard in, in Rome. And this is part of the tension that exists behind the letter and, and something that we need to wrestle with as we go through it. And anytime we start a, a sermon series, I think it's helpful to have an analogy or an idea of what really the theme of the book as a whole is. And it's something that we can come back to occasionally, but something also that hopefully will direct your reading. I encourage you this week on The City, if you read one chapter of Ephesians every day, You'll read the book every week. There's only six chapters. It shouldn't take you more than ten minutes to read one chapter. So if you go through the book of Ephesians every week, as we go through it as a church, you're going to have a much better comprehension of what the book is about, and you're going to get a lot more out of the sermon series. And here's an analogy to keep in mind that will help you as you think about the book. Uh, I want you to think about the story of David and Goliath. Right? The Philistines, a foreign army, has oppressed the Israelites. They're mocking them. Israel has lost all hope of looking forward to deliverance. Goliath, the giant, comes out and mocks them every day. Eventually, David shows up. David, God's divine warrior, and he defeats Goliath, strikes him dead. And then what happens? The Israelites rally, and they chase down the Philistines. Now notice, David didn't say, I'm God's chosen one, I'm here to fight for you defeated Goliath and then proceeded to do hand-to-hand combat with every Philistine. What happened? No, his victory over the giant enabled, rallied the people to then participate in the campaign that they were called to. That is very much the notion of Ephesians, which more than any other New Testament book, not just of Paul's writing, is going to draw on these notions of, of militaristic language, and divine warrior. And what Paul is saying to the Ephesians, who he worries about them entering into faithlessness. He's worried that they're tired. He's worried as persecution increases, they're not going to be faithful, nor believe in Jesus' victory. He reminds them that Jesus is the one who has conquered sin and death. But this doesn't mean that Jesus has then proceeded to defeat every aspect of brokenness and fallenness in their life. Paul says, this is the rallying cry. This is the call to the church. This is your call to purpose. You are now participants in the campaign that extends God's rule, that makes his glory manifest in the whole world. You are participants. You are called to carry out this campaign. That's the letter to the Ephesians, which is really a very radical notion. Not only um, 
in terms of religion in general, but in terms of how we think about faith as American evangelicals. We like to say, oh, I've believed in Jesus. I'm essentially all set. That's not at all what Paul is saying in his letter to the Ephesians. says, yes, you believed in the victory of Jesus. You have been redeemed. You've been saved for a purpose. Your purpose is to now participate in the campaign. You are at war. Pretending that you're, you're not at war is not going to do you any good. I mean, you can imagine that you're at war and you say, I'm going to pretend I'm not at war. I'm going to go hang laundry on the front line. You're going to get shot. Or you say, I'm at war. I'm not going to pretend I'm not at war, but I'm going to hide. I'm going to find a little corner of a trench somewhere, and I'm going to keep my head down, and I'm going to let everyone around me fight. Well, shame and guilt are slowly going to build, and you're going to realize that you're not engaging the very purpose that you've been called for, and you'll be miserable. You are called to a purpose. You are saved to engage this campaign that is laid out before us in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Are you engaged? Do you realize Paul makes no, no, I mean, emphatically says the church is at war. It is the church's posture. Do you understand the nature of that war and do you understand the nature of your role in that campaign? This is what we're wrestling with in our sermon series. I wanted to turn to Ephesians because I wanted to think more deeply together about what it means to be the church. Right Towards the middle of the letter when Paul gets a little bit deeper, he says, in 310, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Right? That's, those are the enemies. We'll talk more about what that means later on. But the church is to be the demonstration of the manifold wisdom of God. Where is that manifold wisdom demonstrated? It's in Christ. And so we are called to tell and to act out the story of Christ in this world. And that's how we defeat those who are opposed to God's reign. All right. It's a lot by way of introduction, but Paul actually is going to help us to introduce the letter because what he does is he seems to explode in praise as he begins the letter. Verses 3 to verse 14 is one sentence which a notable Greek scholar has called the most convoluted sentence in all of Greek antiquity. Right? It's, it is a dense, it's complex, and we're going to have to break it up over two weeks. But what Paul is doing in the midst of this very long uh, praise of God celebrating what God has done, is uh, introduce the major themes that are coming up in the letter. It's a great introduction. And so that's what we're after this morning. I'm going to say five brief things, highlight five themes briefly that will take us through the rest of the letter. Number one, what has God done? Did you notice in verse three, right? Paul just explodes immediately. He said, blessed be the God and Father. Well, Why? Why are we praising God? Why are we saying blessed be? Well, because if you look at verse 3, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing that exists in the heavenly places is yours. God is not spared to lavish any blessing at His disposal upon you. That in and of itself is pretty radical and pretty good reason for praise, but Notice how Paul expresses this blessing has occurred. It is not strictly as if something has been handed off to you for your possession. No, it is something that is to you in Christ. In other words, you only experience the blessings that God has to offer in Christ. 
Now, this little phrase with one little preposition, in Christ, is incredibly important to Paul. Paul uh, relies heavily, in fact, it's his favorite theological phrase, either in Christ or through Christ, and theologically we refer to it as union with Christ. That all of our salvation and redemption, all the benefits thereof, every blessing that we have in God is only in Christ. It's only as we are unified to Him, which means that there is no blessing apart from relationship to Christ. Calvin, Calvin made this analogy. He said, union with Christ is like the sun and all of the benefits of redemption, right? Adoption, uh, forgiveness, uh, restoration, all of these things that we say are benefits of salvation. He said they're like the rays of the sun. But at the center, what captures it all is union with Christ because there is no blessing apart from being unified to Christ, which means any time that we start to think or talk about appropriating a blessing of God or expecting a blessing of God or anticipating a blessing of God, but that is not intimately connected with relationship with Jesus Christ, we are not only kidding ourselves, we're mocking the nature of the gospel. It's the same thing as if you were to say, I want all the blessings and benefits of marriage, but I don't really want a spouse. Right? Some of you might think that, that sounds quite nice. In your relationship with Jesus, you think that sounds quite nice too. Because there are times where you want all the blessings and benefits of redemption, but drawing close to Jesus and being intimately tied to Him in relationship, not so much. That requires a lot. Relationship is hard. He can say things to me that I don't like and make expectations of me. Can't we just kind of have a Bible study on all the blessings that are ours in Christ? The blessings don't exist apart from relationship. In Christ is central to Paul. It's central to the gospel. All right. This is what causes Paul to begin his praise. What has God done? He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. All right. That's what God has done, but how has God done it? Number two, how has God done this? Verse four, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Okay. Before the foundation of the world, God chose you to be redeemed, to be saved in Christ. Which means before the foundation of the world, God chose that if Jesus went to earth and walked faithfully and obediently and surrendered his life unto death, that he would allow all those chosen in him to be redeemed along with him. Remember, all of our blessings, all of our, uh, uh, the spiritual blessings are ours in Christ. We come to this notion of what we call theologically predestination or election. We have to be careful because it's a very, it's a very complicated doctrine. It's not easy. It's, um, and can be very challenging in certain aspects. And it's always, I've always been annoyed by the certain groups within Reformed theology who think that this is a particularly easy doctrine or should be treated lightly. And so we have to say a number of things here relatively quickly. Paul will give us opportunity in the weeks to come to think about it more deeply. But first of all, we need to say that in one sense, um, God chooses. Of course he does. Right? The story of the Bible is the story of a humanity that is so broken and so sinful and so hating toward God that there is no way that we should be able to conceive that, oh, if I just sat down and thought about things, I would, dis- I would figure things out. I bet there's a creator. Yahweh makes more sense than most. The story of Jesus is a good one. I'm going to believe in that one. 
the story of the Bible is that humanity constantly moves in the wrong direction. It constantly makes a bad decision. It constantly moves away from God. And that we are born with hatred in our hearts toward God. So, of course, God has to move toward us in love so that we might be able to love Him. That's the only way that it could possibly work, that He would approach us. And that's how it's worked all along. God chose Noah. And God chose Abraham. And God chose Jacob. God chose David. Over and over again, selecting someone to serve, to be redeemed and to serve His purposes. Now, so we say first, of course God chooses. He has to. We wouldn't love Him unless He loved us first. But secondly, we have to always remember that to be chosen is never strictly about salvation. And this is one of, boy, the Reformed tradition has a terrible, um, not overall, but just pockets, where we reduce election, we reduce this notion that God chooses simply to salvation. God has chosen me for salvation, so I'm good to go. God never chooses for salvation apart from choosing for purpose. You are elected unto a role. You are called unto a divine purpose. All right? Just think about what Paul's trying to do. He's worried about the Ephesians. And what he writes simply to them, Oh, I'm really worried about you walking away under persecution. I want you to remain faithful. But you're chosen. Sincerely, Paul. Well, right? If you go in the wrong direction with that, you think, Well, it doesn't really matter what I do. Because I'm in. I'm chosen. I'm going to be thankful, but at the end of the day, no. That's not at all what Paul says. Paul goes on in the letter to, to chastise them, to say that you are living in a way that is different from the way that you learned Christ. And you need to come back to Him. You have been selected, called out of darkness, for a particular purpose, which is to participate in the campaign of Christ's victory. And to simply say, or to think about being saved without participating in the campaign of Christ's victory isn't to understand election at all. It's to grossly misunderstand it. So Paul, or God has approached us. He has chosen us. And why has He done this? Well, it tells us in verse 4 that He has chosen us in love. That's pretty astounding. One of the reasons I love Christianity is this very notion that Really, in the history of the world, you don't get a notion of a divine being that approaches his people sacrificially in love. That he says, I'm willing to give up something of myself simply for your good, even though you hate me. And even though, when given the opportunity, you won't hesitate to crucify me. That's how much God loves you. You know, if you came and told me, you know, I'm dying my life is, is coming to an end unless I'm, I'm redeemed by this one thing and it, it actually I can be redeemed by the death of your child. I would say, well, I'm really sorry that you're dying, but I'm not giving up my child. Right? That degree of love doesn't exist within me. And yet it exists within the Godhead that God would surrender, would allow the Trinity to be severed, and Christ would sacrifice himself so that you could be chosen from before the foundation of the world. You are deeply and ridiculously loved. But again, not without purpose. What does Paul say in verse 4? That you should be holy and blameless before Him. 
You are not loved. You are not redeemed so that you simply can say, oh, I'm good to go. You have been selected to be made holy and blameless, which is simply saying you have been sanctified, set apart for this purpose of participating in Christ's campaign. All right, so we know what God has done. We know how and why he did it. But what difference does it make? Yes, you are forgiven. You are redeemed. Paul goes on to say, you're a recipient of his grace. But look at verses 8 and 9, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. How does this grace come upon us? Well, it's lavished upon us, again, in God's generosity. But what does it really mean to receive the grace of Christ? Again, so often we reduce grace to forgiveness. Grace is not forgiveness. Forgiveness is an attribute of grace, but grace precedes forgiveness. Anytime God has approached us in a kindness, that is grace. Grace precedes sin. Right? Grace is simply some, someone higher showing favor, bestowing honor on someone lower. And God that even creates us and then he enters into relationship with us before sin even enters the picture has extended grace to us. And how does this grace in Christ now become lavished upon us? It becomes lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. You have received wisdom and insight, and know the mystery of God's will. What does that mean? What Paul means is this. Amongst all the peoples on the face of the entire earth, those who have been called and unified to Jesus Christ understand that there is one key to understanding all of history. Not only all of history, but everything that's happening around us in that one key is Jesus himself. Interestingly, just as an example, Paul's going to go on in, in, in uh, chapter 4, and he's going to talk about what it means for us as the church to understand and to live out of this grace, right? If it's been lavished upon us, if we have insight and knowledge and understand a mystery that others do not, then we're going to look differently from the rest of the world. And what Paul will say in 4.15 is that you are expected to be truthing in love. You say, well, that's odd. And if you look at 4.15 in the ESV or almost any English translation, it actually says that, that you are to be speaking the truth in love, but the word speaking isn't there. We just say it because there's no really easy way to, to translate it into English. What Paul says is that we are called to be a community that is truthing in love. Well, what does that mean? Paul goes on to scold the Ephesians in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 4. He says, that is not how you learn Christ. But he goes on to say, so their failure to truth and love is that they aren't reflecting Christ. That's, they aren't exhibiting Christ. He goes on to say, as the truth is in Jesus. In Paul's mind, what it means to be truthing in love is to be acting out the life of Jesus in the midst of our community. He'll say this more emphatically in 5, 1, and 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. In other words, when we talk about receiving insight and knowledge, when we talk about this grace being lavished upon us, we say, well, okay, so what? Or what does this look like? How does it play out? 
And it plays out by us conforming to the person of Jesus. So again, even more radically, not only is Paul saying that we've been called to participate in the campaign that Christ has begun. Christ has ascended, he's victorious. Now he's sent us out to participate in this campaign, to wrestle against the powers and principalities, right? And to uh, be salt and light, to draw those who are outside of the community of believers into the community of believers. How do we do this? By truthing and love. What is truthing and love? It's acting just like Jesus acted. It's embodying the story of Jesus in our own time. And here we're going to have to wrestle as we move forward. Do our lives embody the life of Jesus? Do we tell his story? Or do we tell the story of the American dream and stamp a Jesus stamp on it? What really do we expect to be told by our lives? And when someone looks at your life, do they learn anything about Jesus? Or do they learn simply about how to be healthy, wealthy, and wise in America? This is the difference that it will make for us and for the church, but toward what purpose? And here is our last observation. Where is this headed? Verse 10, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. The God's intention is to bring everything together and create a peace that will defeat and ultimately vanquish all sin and death and brokenness. And the analogy, or not analogy, but the example that Paul is going to re, uh, rely on in the letter, his letter to the Ephesians is he, and we don't, we don't get it, but is that Jew and Gentile have been brought together. Right? If you're growing up in antiquity, if you're growing up in the Jewish world in Paul's day, there are only two kinds of people, and you are at absolute odds. It's Jew and Gentile. And that Paul has surprisingly done this tour de force in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and brought Jew and Gentile together under his lordship was unfathomable. It's, uh, it's the same notion as when the author of Revelation speaks of a time in which the lion will lay down with the lamb. That's the kind of radical overturning of the animosity that exists in the world that will ultimately be no more when Jesus reigns fully. Well, you might think, you know, one of the great questions, well, why didn't that happen the day Jesus rose from the dead? What are we still doing here? If this is all that comes forth from Jesus conquering sin and death, and He's conquered sin and death, why are we here? This is Paul's letter to the Ephesians. He would say, you cannot possibly come up with an understanding or any explanation of the delay of Jesus Christ's return without immediately looking at the role of the church and participating in His campaign. And somehow, in ways that we have yet to explore, it's by participating in his campaign that we are actually made new. Paul will say that we are called to put off the old self and to put on the new self to get undressed and to put aside what was old and to put on what was new. How do you do that? You participate in the campaign. This is how God has structured it. That in our participation, as the Israelites ran after the Philistines after David defeated Goliath, we are called to run after sin and death, the principalities and the powers, as Jesus has been victorious. Do you know this? Do you notice how Paul starts? 
in verse 3. You know, it's kind of funny. It's a little bit different than some of his other letters, but he starts writing the people. He does his nice little introduction. And then suddenly, almost overwhelmed, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be. In other words, everything he wants to talk about has resulted in him praising God. And we see that any good theology, any good understanding of God results in worship. Do you identify with this at all? Do you ever find yourself going through the week and saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If I just pause for a minute and think about the blessings that Paul is talking about, I should be led to worship. I should be, I should be led to say, My goodness. God, thank you. Praise be your name. You really are exceptional, and what you have done is miraculous. But do you know that voice of thanksgiving and praise? If not, what does Paul know that you don't know? Or what does Paul believe that you don't believe? This is what we're after over the coming weeks, because in understanding that, we understand who we're supposed to be. And in understanding and growing in who we're supposed to be, we become the church that exhibits that demonstrates the manifold wisdom of God. Let's pray that God will help us in it. God, our Father, we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you for your kindness and mercy, and we we confess, we praise you with Paul. Blessed be you, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For you have not only defeated, defeated sin and death, but in, in great grace and kindness, you have invited us to participate in this campaign that we would be made mature, that we would not be left uh, foolish or infants or immature, but instead that you would make us more than who we are and that we would be allowed to know the abundant life that is in Christ by engaging in that very battle against the powers and principalities. Holy Spirit, would you come and strengthen us for this task? Would you come and make us wise and grow us up the truth and wisdom and knowledge that is Christ our Lord. We thank you for your great grace and mercy and ask that you would receive our worship in a way that is pleasing in your sight. Amen.